Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. We just can't solve the challenges we face from within the story that created them, right? Like, mm. we, we, we can't solve... Uh, a crisis of loneliness and mental ill health from within a story that says we're independent, isolated individuals. You, ca- you can't solve a crisis of inequality from a story that says that the society is a ladder you climb. And most important, like most viscerally to me, you can't solve an ecological crisis from a story that says we're separate from nature. Welcome to How to Citizen with Baratunde, a podcast that reimagines citizen as a verb, not a legal status. This season is all about how we practice democracy. What can we get rid of? What can we invent? And how do we change the culture of democracy itself? We're leaving the theoretical clouds and hitting the ground with inspiring examples of people and institutions that are showing us new ways to govern ourselves. If you're new to this podcast, welcome. Make sure you check out the first episode of this season with Adrian Marie Brown, the organizer, facilitator, and artist who shared ways we can deepen our citizen practice and bring it home. In this episode, I'm joined by someone who has spent a lot of time thinking about stories. How they come into being, what they mean, and how they inform the way we live with each other. The first time I met John Alexander, we were both guests on a podcast called From What If to What Next?, with Rob Hopkins. Like me, John was also using Citizen in this inclusive, participatory sense, and we just clicked. He's the author of Citizens, Why the Key to Fixing Everything is All of Us, and he's also the founder of the New Citizenship Project, a social innovation lab that works with organizations 
to shift their culture and practice by helping them think of people as citizens first. It's one thing to catalog projects. His book does that, and so do we with this podcast. But it's a completely different thing to have a staff, facilitators, workshops, and clients who are really trying to implement things. I mean, there's no How to Citizen Institute. Not yet. I respect that while John is talking and writing about making citizenship a practice, he's also practicing it himself. And it's a far cry from the work he was doing before this. John Alexander is a former ad man. During his time in that world, he won awards for telling the consumer story until it made him sick. Actually, physically sick. And he couldn't continue selling a narrative he didn't believe in. So he decided to fight for a different story. John is helping us take a narrative turn toward the citizen story. One where we're not simply independent, but interdependent. We don't just compete, we collaborate. And our leaders don't just serve. They facilitate our participation in democracy. How would we show up? What would we build together if we told ourselves we were citizens, not consumers? To find out, I met up with John in Los Angeles, along with our live studio audience via Zoom, who you'll hear from at the end of the episode. After the break, John Alexander on why being a conscious consumer is not the same as being a citizen. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hold up. 
Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Y'all, John Alexander is the author of Citizens, Why the Key to Fixing Everything is All of Us. He's the co-founder of The New Citizenship Project, a book and a company that works to shift the dominant story of the individual and society from consumer to citizen. He began his career with a decade in the advertising industry, so he knows exactly what's wrong. And I'm so excited to have him on How to Citizen. Welcome, John. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Let's start here. Your work is about analyzing and reimagining the narratives that inform how we live and relate to the world around us. And you identified three stories. The story of the subject, the story of the consumer, and the story of the citizen. I want to start with a focus on the first two. What is the subject story and where did it begin? The subject story begins all the way back with the first known king in Sumeria in 2500 BC. And with the first king came the first walls, came the first writing that was initially used to kind of track how much people owed tax and and these kinds of things. And that story started with this idea that the God-given few know best. And if the rest of us keep our heads down, do as we're told, get what we're given, and do as the God-given few tell us, then that is how the best society will result. Okay. The best benevolent dictator idea, but we all know where that usually ends up. Ultimately, this is the story that leads you into colonialism and patriarchy and all those big things. Yeah. And it goes a long way back, and it was dominant for an awful long time. And when we are in times of uncertainty, in times of chaos in times when we don't know exactly what to do, then the subject story has a powerful attraction, right? Because we want to find some safety. We want to find some security, some certainty. Well, we might think we want someone to tell us what to do. And in those moments, like the possibility, the promise of the kind of strongman leader vibe is really strong. Okay. And I think that's a big part of what we're seeing in this moment in time. Mm. So the subject story lasted an awful long time, intensified around the world, really only became properly dominant in the kind of 1600s with the age of discovery. And then after the Industrial Revolution, the rise of the middle class, the the idea that there were a God-given few who knew best and they would tell us what to do kind of fell in on itself. Mm. And... In many ways, I believe that the two world wars resulted from that breakdown of story, resulted from that kind of collapse of the systems and structures by which we organized ourselves. Yeah. And out of them, we stepped into what was a better story, right? Like from the subject story, the consumer story is a liberating shift. So the subject story and the fact that it goes to a made up sounding king in a made up sounding place, <laughs> Argon of Sarkad or something like that. Sargon of Akkad. Sargon of Akkad. Yeah, my friend. What is this consumer story then? And so the, when does it emerge? The consumer story is the story that's 
I think, still dominant in our world today. The consumer story is the story that says that actually the, the right thing to do is to pursue self-interest on the basis that if everyone pursues self-interest, if everyone chooses the option that suits them best from those that are offered, that will add up to the collective interest. Mm. That by pursuing self-interest, we will create the best society that's possible as a whole. I mean, the, the Milton Friedman, famous Milton Friedmanism, the social responsibility of businesses to maximize its profits is a perfect articulation of, of consumer morality, actually. Yeah. Like it's yeah. saying the right thing to do, really explicitly, the right thing to do is to pursue self-interest on the behalf of the corporation, on the behalf of the individual, because that is what will add up to the best society. Yeah. So it's not just an economic incentive. It's a patriotic incentive. Right. You serve best. You support your nation best by buying stuff. I mean, you could even say it's a kind of human incentive. The reason why I went into the advertising industry in the first place, I was 19 at university trying to figure out what to do with my life when the World Trade Center came down. Yeah. And the leaders of the free world mm. uh, came out and told us to go shopping, right? Right. And at yeah. some level, I think I went into the advertising industry thinking unconsciously consci uh, that I was making a contribution. Wow. The kind of key moment actually was... My first boss described my job to me by saying, what you've got to remember is the average consumer sees something like 3,000 commercial messages a day. Yeah. This was back in 2003. And he said, your job is to cut through that. You've got to make yours the best. And did you feel motivated by that? Was it For fun to do that? Yeah. yeah. I and mean, it's hugely intellectually stimulating, right? You're like, oh, there's all this stuff out there. There's so much noise. And I'm going to make mine the thing. I mean, I'm... Look, I'm a six foot athletic white guy. Like that's what I like to do, right? It's an, <laughs> another conquest, oh, man. an attention conquest. <laughs> Amen. And then over time, and probably it took me longer than it should have in retrospect. I started to ask, what are we doing to ourselves when we tell ourselves we're consumers three thousand odd times a day? Mm. Like, what does that do to us? What does it do to our relationships with one another? What does it do to what we think is possible? What we think humans are capable of? Yeah. What are the sort of products and services you were advertising? All sorts of stuff, man. I mean, I worked on big brands in the UK, particularly like okay. Cadbury and Orange, like a big phone company. Yeah. Uh, I was at the agency where we, we produced the Cadbury Gorilla, which was like a big moment. Okay. Uh, a gorilla playing the drums to Phil Collins. That was life changing. Uh, there we go, my friend. Yeah, man. <laughs> uh, I worked on Sony. Like we were agency of the year a couple of years that I was there. Like these were the big brands. This was the big stuff. In the consumer story, you point out that 1984 mm. was a key moment. Yeah. What was it about 1984? I mean, and it, it starts with the launch of the Apple Macintosh, yeah. with the most famous ad in history, which is the takeoff of Orwell's 1984, like troops draining down a corridor and Big Brother's voice, and then a woman in glorious Technicolor runs onto the screen, smashes the screen Big Brother's talking from, and you get this voiceover that concludes, and I'm going to do a horrendous American accent yes, in the US. Please. Here it comes. On January 24th, Apple will release Macintosh, and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. It's this moment, yeah. right? But also that year, you had two other of the great super brands arrived. So Nike sold the first pair of Air Jordans that yeah. year. Virgin Atlantic launched, so the Virgin brand arrived on the global stage. But then the picture thickens, because you get Body Shop floated on the stock exchange, bringing the idea you can buy stuff to save the planet. Mm. You get Band-Aid that year, the idea you can buy stuff to solve global poverty. You get the miners' strike and the first privatization in the UK, so politics shifting in this kind of consumer direction. Yeah. And my favorite, actually, of all of them, the LA Olympics 1984, which were the first Olympics ever to be funded by commercial sponsorship. LA was the only city to apply to host the 84 Olympics because other cities had made such a financial loss. Mm. And they had the IOC over a barrel. And the rules changed. 
and suddenly you could buy stuff to fund global sport and culture. So that consumer story is is winding its way into so many different areas of our lives. We're liberating so many of our activities allegedly through this, and you're involved in it. Right. And later in this timeline, you're involved in crafting these stories and selling these products. And there's an adrenaline rush and there's excitement and there's true creativity. Amen. And it's exciting until, until it isn't. Right. So when did your excitement to get involved and serve in some way through advertising start to crack? I remember being in a meeting talking through uh, Hero Products for a big retailer's Christmas advertising in May, which was a bad start. <laughs> uh, and we got to the one pound Christmas tree. Baratunde here with a very quick explainer tunde. We're talking about pounds as in the British currency, not the weight. Now back to John's story. And we got to the one pound Christmas tree and someone at the table said, the one pound Christmas tree, you can almost smell the exploitation. Uh, and everyone laughed. Mm. And, it was, and it was just this moment of like feeling the flame inside you turned down. Like yeah. It was really like a series of kind of investigations. Uh, I, I worked on a on a report on ethics and advertising. Um, I pretty much got sacked off the back of that. Um, but really interrogating this question ultimately of what are we doing to ourselves when, when we're surrounded with this story and coming to the understanding that actually I was essentially kind of preaching a, almost a religion that I didn't believe in, not mm. championing values that I did. Right. And I went through a like super dark period at this time. And I wasn't the most constructive individual around this period. I, like I sometimes think if I'd, started a company at this point, it would have been called the Consumer Doom Project, not the New Citizenship Project, right? Like I was staring into the chasm, which I think so many of us are trapped doing now. In these darker periods, was this physical? You, we were, yeah. were you ill? Were, was it behavior that you weren't proud of? Like what, what did that, I mean, how did that manifest? It, but yeah. there was a day, there was a, well, there was a week actually, a week I ended up resigning where I stood on the platform at Oxford Circus Tube Station uh, and in my office and just watched tubes come and go and like felt this like revulsion inside me. I, I honestly don't remember what exactly I was thinking. And then I was physically sick. Like I, mm. I threw up on the platform and it was just like this feeling of, of just, I mean, I guess kind of self-hatred actually, like a real yeah. kind of rejection of, of the role I was playing and what I was doing. And I kind of had to get out at that point. It sounds like an overdose. Huh. Almost like you over you OD'd on the consumer story. Maybe yeah. you got high on your own supply, right? And some part of your body maybe knew this isn't for me anymore. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, I can't separate the kind of intellectual journey from the from the physical. Right? Yeah. Like it's you're asking deep enough questions, and you. I just got to a point where it was overwhelming. Mm. But yeah, I was a difficult guy to be around at that time. Can I talk to those people? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, some of the best of them are, are still closest friends now, and some of them are still working in the ad industry. And look, I'm, I'm not trying to demonize all of those guys. Like, I think the the important thing to recognize when you start to see these as stories, mm -hmm. when you start to see it in this way, is that you're not just talking about like, it's the problem is consumption, the problem is advertising. Like, it's much more about the, the storytelling of our society. It's the fact that what I would describe what we live in today as a consumer democracy, where our only agency is to choose between a fixed set of options that are offered to us, yeah. where we're actually encouraged to make that choice on the basis of our own individual self-interest. Like it's infused that. That story has pervaded everything. And I guess I focus on advertising because it was the part I played. And, and your focus on advertising, it resonates with me because I spent a lot of time in media. Mm -hmm and in advertising, which is inseparable. And I remember realizing 
at a certain point that the folks who were making the ads felt as legitimate as storytellers as the content they were sitting next to. Right. And it's true. I mean, they're selling and telling a story of who we can be through our purchases. And there's so much more money in that mm -hmm. <laughs> than just the art world. So you were, I think we're at the kind of the eye of the storm mm -hmm. for the story because ads are little stories right. that try to nudge us into thinking differently or behaving differently. And all of them have that kind of underlying or overarching kind of meta frame that, yeah. that you are a consumer. You are an individual. Your agency yeah. is to choose between things. Between these choices. And in one meeting years ago, I remember stopping and saying, can we just call them people? Mm. Right. Like just the, the language on the slides, on the wall, it was just like consumers, consumers. And the consumer wants this and the consumer wants that. And when I repeat that word, it consumes me. Right. It makes me think of consumption, not the act of eating food, but the disease. Right. And as we used to refer to it. And so we will devour ourselves by referring to ourselves in that way. And there's actually a heap of evidence that even the word is damaging, mm. right? So there's a couple of different studies. One, one we were involved in replicating where, like, so you give 2,000 people a resource dilemma scenario. You say you're one of four households dependent on a single well for your water supply and the well's starting to run dry, so you need to use less water. Okay. So you're asked two questions. To what extent are you prepared to use less water? And to what extent do you trust the other three households to use less water? Mm -hmm. Clever bit is for half the sample, the word household is replaced with the word consumer. And for people for whom the word is consumer, to what extent are you prepared to compromise? To what extent do you trust the other three consumers? That's lower, significantly lower. Yeah. So when we use that language, even the word, and it's not, again, it's not just the word, it's the mm -hmm. story, but mm -hmm. the word carries the story, yeah. right? When we use that word inside organizations, we're effectively, I think of it like as the scaffolding, right? Like, or, or, the, or the train tracks or something. Like, there is no other possible... Yeah. We, we, we set a limit to in. our thinking, yeah, right? that's right. We limit our imaginations. Right. And we can only see a person as this subset of themselves, this and, function. And the only path we can imagine to a better society is channeling people's self-interest in the service of that. Mm. Because mm. we assume people are only capable of that. I've come to think of consumerism essentially as a kind of species-level self-hatred complex. It's, okay. like, it's like we're telling ourselves we're not good enough to deal with this stuff. Yeah. It's giving away some power. It's like all I have is this. Right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dominate. I'm going to lean into this. I'm going to be the best version of this I can. Right. But I'm not going to think about all the other things I could be because I don't have the language for it. Right. Language. Ah. Third story. We've talked subject. We've talked consumer. The citizen story. When does this, as an alternate frame, occur to you? The citizen story. Occur to me personally. Yeah, and what, is, what does it mean? Yeah. Give me a brief overview and then tell me when it enters your, your mind. So in the subject story, people are dependent. They have stuff done to them. The role of organizations and leaders is to command them and, and the role of subjects is to obey and receive. Okay. In the consumer story, people are independent. They have stuff done for them. They demand and choose and the role of organizations and leaders is to serve them. In the citizen story, we're interdependent. We do stuff together with and through organizations. Mm. The role of organizations and leaders is to facilitate and hold the space for that. And what we most deeply want to do and are capable of doing is participate and create. And that structure, when you start to see that and think like that, mm -hmm. I think you start to see this story everywhere, like just beneath the surface. Yeah. But to your question before, like, 
living and working in the ad industry, I couldn't really see it because I was so in, so in frame. Yeah. And so when I, the first place I came across it was weirdly like an idea we came up with. I'm still not sure quite how we did. And this is the idea that won that creative idea of the year okay. award, which is an idea called My Farm, where we tried to hand over decision making on a real working farm to the public by online vote and debate. This was back in 2011, nearly killed me and several animals. I, <laughs> <laughs> maybe what's interesting about this is it, is it did actually come out of trying to think of ways to build an organization, ways to sell an organization, oddly. Mm. I was working on the National Trust, which is a big conservation organization in the UK. They own and run 500-odd places of historic interest and natural beauty all over the country. And we were going, like, how do we, how do we get people to understand and, and value this organization? Mm -hmm. And sort of accidentally stumbled into this idea, before I had this language of consumer and citizen, that was like, what if we involve people in it rather than just do it for them? Let's not just sell people sustainable food. Let's involve them in sustainable food production. And the model and the approach, I mean, we've had crowdfunding, crowdsourced ideas. We've had participatory, all kinds of things. Right. But in that world, like inside the consumer story, that's a very radical approach. Right. Because you're seeing people as something other than purchasers. You're seeing them as producers and contributors and creators and collaborators, not just competitors. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Are there villains and heroes in the citizen story? Huh. I think there are, but I think they're more people who are and organizations who are co-opting the, the modes of the citizen story in service of something else. Example, what does that mean? So one of the like craziest experiences of the research for the book was I went not very deep, but deep enough into the into the QAnon world. And uh, the starting point of that journey is, we need you. Mm. Come help. Yeah. We need your energy. We need your resources. We need your ideas. And I mean, that's coming from that's coming from subject story world. It's coming from a desire to take charge and create tribe and tell people what to do. Yeah. But it's wearing the clothes of participation. And I think that speaks a lot to the moment in time we find ourselves in, right? Like yeah. the, the way I would describe it, I've already mentioned this idea of like consumer democracy. Like I think, I think too many of those in, the, in positions of power and influence in our society today can only see two stories. Mm -hmm. They can see the consumer story as the status quo and they can see the subject story rising and they see... The authoritarianism. Right. Yeah. But as a result, they see their role as being to defend the consumer story. And the danger of that is that like, we just can't solve the challenges we face from within the story that created them, right? Like mm. we, we, we can't solve a crisis of loneliness and mental ill health from within a story that says we're independent, isolated individuals. You can't solve a crisis of inequality from a story that says the society is a ladder you climb. And most important, like most viscerally to me, you can't solve an ecological crisis from a story that says we're separate from nature, right? And our only way forward is to destroy the thing we depend on most. Right. Yeah. And so that story, the consumer story is crumbling, like it's falling apart. And you can't, ultimately, we're going to have to shift. 
And so the danger of this moment, I think, in, is that these these tools and approaches of the citizen world are kind of emerging and they're so powerful and so exciting and so creative. And if we mm -hmm. don't adopt them, then those who would actually create a subject world will co-opt them, will yeah. we'll steal those clothes. When you told the story of QAnon, I think you started hinting at what some of these tools of the citizen story right. are. Can you be a bit more specific about it? If we don't pick these up, someone else will. What are what are the things? What are the tools of the citizen story? Well, I, I mean, it's the stuff you talk to. It's like crowdsourcing, crowdfunding. It's like it's like inviting people in. I mean, you've talked to Audrey Tang, I know, on this podcast, yes. and like what the Taiwanese government did in their response to COVID, that fast fun fair. Thing. Listen to that episode, my friends. But the, <laughs> Thanks, the, the tools begin with asking people a question and saying like, so in the Taiwanese example, it was, we don't know how to get through this challenge of the pandemic. What we do know is that we'll get through it best if we tap into the ideas and energy and resources of everyone. Like we know we'll do it best together. That's the start point. Yeah. Then the challenge is how do you create the, the structures and processes that enable people to contribute and make it meaningful and joyful for people to get involved. Mm -hmm. In Taiwan, they did some lovely stuff like high tech stuff, like challenge prizes and these sorts of things. But they also, my favorite story, I was, uh, they created a phone line where any citizen could ring in with ideas. With a suggestion. Country. Yeah. Right. Like a working suggestion box. And then they actually listened to the messages. And adopted them. Yes. <laughs> and it's, so this stuff is not rocket science, a yeah. lot of it, right? Yeah. But, but it, it's most fundamentally that shift in mindset and then the shift in tools kind of follows from that. The other example I'm thinking of when I, when I think about the framework that we've tried to hold to with our principles, which overlap so much mm. participation, investing in relationships, understanding power, valuing the collective. And I, I look at our school board meetings in the U S which have become so violent and this site of intimidation physically. And I look at who's showing up to political rallies and it's armed people. Right. I'm like, well, they're showing up and participating. Mm. They're investing in relationships. People go to Trump rallies over and over again and know each other and build friendships out of that. Right. They're understanding their power. The attacks on education in our country yeah. in terms of not teaching our real history is well-funded and distributed to the very edges of society. It yeah. doesn't just live inside of our beltway. It's my friends who live in the suburbs and somewhere in Texas are getting mailings at home. Right. Scaring them and then telling them who to harass. Yeah. So that's in a very effective model, yeah. but in service, in your words, of a subject model. Right. So it's, a, it's in sheep's clothing, right? And the, and the sheep is the citizen story. Mm. This is where like the process design of this stuff is so crucial. Yeah. Right. And particularly to those who fear that in, in the US, maybe things are too polarized for this sort of approach to work. My favorite example of, of really clear kind of process design and, and, and doing this really powerfully, November 2019, just before the, the impeachment proceedings began, like America, like the U.S. was super polarized. Oh, right. Moment. The first impeachment. There you go. <laughs> I like forgot about that. I okay, know. go for it. November 2019. You go. You're back. You're back. 50 years ago. I know. Uh, but there was, a, there was a project called America in a Room. Okay. You know about this? No. So they got uh, 526 American citizens, representative of the national population on all key demographics, including political affiliations. Okay. So 30 self-identified as extremely liberal, 30-odd self-identified as extremely conservative. Okay. Came together in a conference suite in Dallas for four days, uh, split into small groups, deliberated on all sorts of, all the issues of the day, mm -hmm. basically. A uh, whole load of, like, consensus emerged, like, lightly. There were shifts away a little bit from a high federal minimum wage mm. because people were, like, engaging with the diversity of the condi economic conditions across America. 
the critical finding, the most powerful thing. So in, in the literature on polarization, there are two different types of polarization, right? There's issue polarization okay. where I disagree with you, Baratone. Yes. And then there's affective polarization, which is you're evil, Baratunde. Mm, yeah. And what they found in this process was that affective polarization went through the floor. Okay. Even, re they rehumanized each other. Uh -huh. Yeah. Even to the extent where I was told that in some of the communities that people were going back to, mm -hmm. these individual participants, they saw affective polarization drop. Well, there's a great New York Times piece on it, actually. Okay. Um, so if you want to check it out there, um, it was run by a gang called the Helena Project, uh, Stanford okay. University, um, James Fishkin was involved in it. It was, it was in the process that's called deliberative polling, was the kind of methodology underpinning it. When I think about um, corporations, most governments, mm -hmm. it seems to me there'd be a lot of risk to them in embracing a citizen story right. that tries to facilitate and not dominate, that tries to encourage participation, wrangle so many different opinions, herd cats. What reasons do they have to make the shift into this different story and potentially, uh, at least in a short-term view, give up some power? Well, look, there's two things I would say to this. The first is just to kind of um, set the premise a little bit. Okay. So I think we talk a lot about people trusting government, right? Mm-hmm and trying to get people to trust government more and this sort of thing. And ultimately, I think that's a flawed premise. Like, what we have to understand is that what we're trapped in at the moment is a vicious circle. Like, we're trapped in a, in a state where people, because our institutions are trapped within the consumer story, they're trying to solve the problems of our time from within that story, and you can't. People are seeing that our institutions aren't up to the tasks. Mm -hmm. And that's why they're losing trust in them. And then they're behaving... A little angrily. And institutions, again, understandably, see that and respond hmm. by withdrawing, by bringing power in. And then people get angrier because, right? Yeah. And then you're in a loop. Yeah. And that is the way I think we need to understand the moment in time we're in. And so that the task and the only place, like Audrey says this, uh, again, this, uh, this idea that actually... Uh, it's not about people trusting government so much as it is about government trusting people. It's about institutions trusting people, which is difficult, mm -hmm. and they, that needs to be acknowledged. Because I've met people. Right. And some of them are the worst. <laughs> right. And, but understanding that that anger and frustration is, comes from someone. And I, and I really want to be clear. I am, like, I'm not, it's kind of easy for me to say, right? Like, I'm, I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. But there is a reason why that's happening, and, we, and we're certain the way down that cycle. Yeah. So, a part of the answer to your question is I think we have to, we have to break the cycle somehow. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is the intervention point. The second part, and maybe the more kind of hopeful and joyful part, is to say it just works. Man. <laughs> if you're into things that work, try this. Right. Yeah. Like there's a reason why like, the business world is going in this direction, actually. Mm -hmm. Like we're seeing... Big corporations like GE use crowdsourcing processes. We're seeing NASA use it. We're seeing some of the fastest growing businesses in the world. Like I talk in the book about a company called BrewDog, which has started in Scotland with two guys and a dog brewing their own beer and, and is now like was the only company to be in the Sunday Times 100 fastest growing companies eight years in a row, I think it yeah. was. And what they're doing is crowdsourcing their recipes. Like they have a thing called DIY dog where they open source those recipes once they've crowdsourced them and, mm. and then sell brewing kits as well as beer and, and, and even train people to be like a sommelier, but for beer. Like that, yeah. again, like 
what that's doing is powering that organization because people are buying into a cause in the, in the world, buying into something that can drive energy, build energy. And then look at Taiwan. It's the most successful COVID response in the world, yeah. right? Fast, fun, fair, second lowest death rate, never went into lockdown. Do you see examples of the citizen story masquerading as a consumer story, maybe for increased palatability or comprehension? I think we can make the citizen story, we can and should make the citizen story appealing and joyful and mm -hmm. creative, right? Like, that's not a bad thing to do. Yeah. I think there is a line where the consumer story maybe can co-opt the citizen story. Could, it, could we end up with something like citizen washing happening? Yeah. <laughs> like, we could, right? And I think BrewDog is an interesting case in point because actually, like, they've behaved pretty badly in some ways recently. What they've found is that the energy of this has grown the company so fast mm -hmm. And then the founders started to kind of believe their own hype, is okay. how I understand it. And they effectively invented equity crowdfunding back in 2009. They sold a load of the company to their customers. Okay. Uh, they've now got something like 200,000 equity punks, they call them. Okay. So again, really creative, cool mm -hmm. way of doing it. But then they sold, and they said they would never sell out, and they sold a big portion of the company to a VC firm. Yeah. And then there's, there's been uh, accusation from within the company of them treating employees pretty badly. But what's so interesting is the group of employees who are starting to kind of fight back and hold them to account and push them are calling themselves punks with purpose. So they're sort of naming themselves from within the idea of the organization yeah. and challenging the founders from that place. Right. And so the really interesting question in that organization is who's co-opting whom, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and once you start to authentically build a citizen story... You can't stop it. Right. Yeah, and it'll, it'll find a way. Right. It may be delayed, but it may not be indefinitely deferred. One of the things that I really uh, admire about you is that you're not just writing about these things. Mm. You're helping put them into practice. You've got the new citizenship project. You do reports, but you also do like activations to take a word from the brand and advertising world, workshops, toolkits. Yeah. Uh, you got boot camps. How do you go about helping folks uh, embrace and implement the citizen story? Can you walk me through your design process? to help folks take idea into action and, sure. and build a new story. So there's basically one of the tools, the key tool really that we've created, the three principles of participatory organizations. You can take the boy out of advertising, but you can't take the alliteration out of the boy, right? So, <laughs> yeah. so the three principles are purpose, platform, and prototype. Okay. And actually just, this is actually a hack on one of the key kind of mental models of the consumer story. So the first edition of a marketing textbook was written that talked about the four principles of the marketing mix. Okay. Product, price, promotion, and placement. Piece. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And that is that the textbooks that that's in is still taught in every MBA course anywhere in the world. Yeah. And so the problem is even organizations that are trying to think differently are pulled back into that story because the four boxes. Yeah. So the three principles, the three Ps, purpose, platform, prototype, is a, is an attempt to sort of offer a, a different framework. An alternative, yeah. So we help people go like the question for each. So purpose is what are you trying to do in the world that's so big you actually need people to do it with you? You can't do it for them. Mm. That's already, I just want to pause you on that. What's an idea that's so big that you need other people? Right. What's something you can ask of people? Right. One of the things I feel is that we haven't been asked to do very much. Yeah. Maybe come and vote every couple of years, right. definitely spend some money, take on debt. Right. And otherwise kind of keep your head down, protect yourself uh -huh. in your little homestead. 
And that's that's all. That's all we got. That our list of requests and demands and opportunities for your participation is very low. So already starting with a big enough purpose that you need other people right. is just a, a very dynamic shift from what most of us experience, I think. Yeah. Keep going. And the power of a question in that space is really yeah. huge as well, right? How can we do this? We, we don't have the answers. We're not going to be able to do it for you, but we can okay. frame the question that we can answer together. Okay. Purpose. Platform. What are the structures and processes that you create to make it meaningful and joyful for people to get involved in that? Like, not easy and convenient. Not like Meaningful and joyful. Meaningful and joyful. Yeah. So... Again, like the Taiwan stuff, the BrewDog stuff, like they, those are examples that speak to that thing. And so we walk through with organizations, helping them develop their ideas to offer those opportunities. And then the prototype one is really just how do you build the energy for this? Because you can't flip a utopian switch and right. become a completely different thing overnight. So how do you build the energy is the third. And are you generally working with young institutions, old institutions, large or small, like... All of the above, okay. like it all figures across every sector. Like mm. the only thing you can't do this stuff with is, is something that doesn't really have a purpose, right? The without which nothing is something that people want to participate in. Without which... Uh, oh, you were using real English on me. Look there at you go, man. <laughs> I've caught up to you. I'm like, the without <laughs> which... This is the problem with talking to a British guy. Sorry. Uh, he uses the language purposefully. Overly, uh, <laughs> overly posh <laughs> moment. There it goes. Um, I sometimes like to think of myself as the kind of anti-Boris Johnson. His name's, his name's actually Alexander Johnson. I'm John Alexander. We both did degrees in ancient Greek and Latin. Like, um, yeah, uh, but you use can, yours publicly. I can, I can posh it with the best of them. <laughs> so maybe what I'll say is, because the last four and a half weeks, like I'm in LA because I'm, I'm going around the world right now, literally around the world. I've yeah. been in Athens, Singapore, Melbourne, Sydney, New Zealand. And there's a couple of things I'm learning through that and thinking about as a result. The first is this is not a new story mm -hmm. and spending time with first nations philosophers particularly in australia and new zealand and going like actually the citizen story is not like a new creation it's deep in us yeah um a guy called tyson Junker porter who you need to get on this you would okay. love tyson okay. uh, wrote a book called sand talk how indigenous thinking can save the world mm. and he basically speaks and sits in a sixty thousand year worldview just by default and the thing he said to me was um like don't worry john uh, I was getting a little stressed. Yeah. He goes, don't worry, John. What you, like, it's going to take humans a good bit longer to forget how to be human, how to be the custodian species is the way he calls it. Yeah. Thank you for that acknowledgement mm. too, because I think we're both pretty young, certainly relative to the human experience. We're gnats, but it can be very tempting to think we need something new. Right. To get us out of this new challenge. Right. And the challenges really aren't that new. Mm -hmm. They're repackaged. They're right. rebranded. And many of the solutions and the pathways forward involve something we've lost or forgotten, mm -hmm. but not entirely new. Right. Uh, is it? There's my Yoda for you. After the break, more on making the shift to the citizen story. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. 
You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. For years, a lot of us have heard this message that we should vote with our wallets. Become a conscious consumer, right? That's, that's a better way forward. What's the difference between conscious consumption and, and a full-blown citizen story? How close can they get to one another? Oh, look, I mean, they are, they're kind of close. Yeah. Um, the way I would put it is that we are what we are told to be. Um, we are what we are told to be. And that is consumers who occasionally vote uh, <laughs> and bring, bring the identity construct and the mode of the consumer to bear on the act of voting. Yeah. What we m- are becoming, I think, or re-becoming, yeah. remembering into the future, yeah. is citizens who sometimes consume and might bring the citizen orientation to bear on the act of consumption. Right. Like, it's not like there's, consumption is over, yeah. right? Like, it's not... The problem is the story, not the act. The problem is consumerism, not consumption. Mm. And so that's... It's a matter of degree. Right. Yeah. But then the other difference is, like, it's just much more fun, man. <laughs> like, the, <Yes>. the, <laughs> trying to be good within the consumer story is hard. Yeah. Like, and guilt-inducing, right? Like... To be good within the consumer story, like you have to never use a disposable cup, never fly, never eat. And, and that stuff's important, right? Mm. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying individual behavior change doesn't matter. 
But actually, like our true agency is collective, right? Like if, if individual behavior changes one plus one plus, it's collective change is multiplied. It's multiplying. It's, it's raised to something. Right. right? We're, we're in the exponential realm now. There you go. Yeah. And it's just joyful, right? Like it's just good to do stuff together. Yeah. But maybe if I could, because I'd love your view on this. Like one of the things I'm thinking about as a result of this trip is like, I think increasingly I'm like, this is us. Like we are citizens by nature. Like people are doing it everywhere. It's it's underneath the surface, but it's kind of happening. Yeah. And and we saw it in COVID in particular, right? You know, mutual aid. All, what's that? It? All yeah. that. Yeah. So what is it that that flips the story? So there is, there is work of muscle building. I love mm -hmm. the frame. I think you did you use this citizenship as a muscle you build or is that yeah, yeah 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 maybe when we talked on, on the other show I brought it up because the gym metaphor was strong in me. There you go, man. <laughs> yeah. So. The other part of the work, I think, is is what I'm increasingly thinking about is these like critical moments when the story can shift at a societal level. Yeah. What does it look like to to more intentionally find or even create and kind of curate those moments? Mm. Like, how might we spot the opportunities for that? So in Australia, I ended up talking to loads of people about the new government has committed to holding a referendum on the Indigenous voice to Parliament. The indigenous voice to parliament, and what is that? So the, the, there was a statement, uh, what's called the Statement from the Heart, a gathering of First Nations leaders came together in Uluru, in the centre of Australia, okay. and produced a set of recommendations for how the voice of indigenous peoples could be better heard in Australian yeah. government. Okay. And they put that forward. The then government rejected it out of hand. Yeah. The new government has said, we want to do this. Mm -hmm. It's a constitutional shift, so it requires referendum. So there will be sometime in the next few years, there will be a referendum on this. Yeah. So that's so, a moment. So that's a moment. Yeah. So how do you design for that? Because mm -hmm. a referendum, trust me, I'm British, can can take a country <laughs> in a dark direction, right? Oh, I'm a Californian. We, there we go, my friend. Yeah, you know. <laughs> we have um, so many referenda out here. Because yeah. a referendum in and of itself is a consumer moment, yes. right? Like it's just pick. Yes. But how you lead up to that how moment, you how that. you have conversations and deliberate there you go. Uh, over that moment could really shift the outcome and the, the feeling you have about the outcome. Right. And then I arrive in New Zealand and I look at like the conversation about climate there mm -hmm. is really ripening. And it's like, how might we bring into that some of these ideas? Yeah. But also like draw on the depth of the, of the Maori wisdoms and even their process. One of the lovely things I came across on this trip was the Maori concept of papanoho which is the word for the joining space between the two hulls of an ocean-going canoe. Okay. And when, when they had a moment of uncertainty, they would gather in these space and, like, and, the, and draw on the wisdom of the people who read the stars best and the people who read the currents best and, mm. and figure out what to do together yeah. in a process of storytelling and story sharing and wisdom sharing. Like, how might we draw on that? Yeah. And, th and then here in LA... I mean, this is the place of story, right? <laughs> yes, like, it is. This is the global <laughs> hub. Yeah. And remember what we said about the Olympics in ninety in eighty four, right? Like, yeah. Then twenty eight, like. So we could we could have a do over, and do something different. If if LA helped accelerate the consumer story by bringing brands to the Olympics, could it help accelerate the citizen story by bringing people to it in a different way? And how might we do that? Yeah. And wouldn't it be great to well, ask that question? Well, now you got me all excited to get there all local, man. So so what are some other ways? Sadly, our listeners do not all reside in LA or New Zealand, which would be really, really perfect. Ways to help us make that mental shift yeah. into the citizen story. Somebody is hearing this now and they're fired up. They're ready to go. Yeah. How do we help tell the story? How do we help join in it yeah. from where we're at right now? What are some of the right. on-ramps you've seen? 
So, I mean, I, I have a pretty simple kind of three-step thing, which I broadly stole from you, I think. <laughs> All right, here it comes. <laughs> for my way of languages, so we'll see, see what you make of this yeah. one. But it's basically like step one, find home. Like decide what the realm, whether it's your workplace, your local place, like the, yeah. or something bigger or something. We but, should we you have to call it a realm though. It just it's more powerful when you refer to it as a realm, yeah, as opposed to a workplace or a neighborhood, right? Okay, so it's find your home, right? find home, find home. Step two, find the others. Hmm. I, I put up the bat signal, right? Yeah. Like who else is who else wants to make this realm better? Yeah, and then step three. And only step three, like decide what the first thing to do is together. Right. Well, I mean, that, that, that sequencing actually feels very important. Mm -hmm. It's not, I have an idea to fix X. I need you to help me get it done. Right. It's, hi, I'm here. You're here too. We're a we now. What do we want to do? There you go. What's important to us, yeah. not just to me. Yeah. And just establishing that shared reality, that shared narrative. There you go. That shared story with the sequencing of that just it actually feels really important because I know so many people, including myself, who are like, "That's wrong. I got an idea. Yeah. Let's go. Here's my petition. Here's my sign up sheet <laughs> to right. join me and my thing. Right. And hopefully you'll feel like it's your thing too. Whereas if you develop it in community, then it has a different potency and a different sense of co investment. Yeah. Okay. When you think about because so much of the new citizenship project work that I've seen is institutional. Yeah. So let's say my realm is my neighborhood. Yeah. And okay, so I've, I've chosen my home. Find others. Mm -hmm. am, am, I, am I calling a meeting? Am I inviting people over for cupcakes? Uh, how specific is my invitation to these others before we decide what it is we might want to affect or change? I mean, it's, it, it, it really varies. It's what yeah. feels feels right to the group, I guess. I mean, I, I think um, maybe a couple of examples from my sort of story gathering that speak most powerfully to this. One of my favorites is the story of a place called Grimsby in, on the northeast coast of England. That's yeah. like the place that's been most screwed over over the last 50 years or so. Mm. And what happened there was uh, the council called a meeting uh, and uh, there's this, a couple of guys, this guy, Billy, who wasn't going to go because he said, like, it'll just be people complaining and the council saying they can't do anything. So yeah. what's the point? We've all seen that meeting. We've all seen that meeting. And a friend of his said our, our mums would have gone and guilt tripped him into uh -huh. it. So, and he went to the meeting and like got so frustrated that he stood up in the meeting and said, look, I'm just going to go clear one street tomorrow. Anyone who wants to join me, I'd love you to join me. And then we'll just see what we do from there. Because yeah. this is too much like dwelling in the pain. Mm. I think it was like, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but let's say it was like 15 people turned up next day. They agreed to do it again two weeks later on a different street. 30 yeah. came. Fast forward four years. These guys now have a magazine called The Proud East Martian. This is in the East Marsh in Grimsby. Okay. They have a six monthly arts festival called the Sun and Moon Arts Festival. And they've just closed pretty recently a half million pounds community share offer, raising money. And that amount of money in Grimsby will buy 10 houses, mm. refit them using good local jobs and let them out as a social landlord, creating a sustainable revenue stream for the rest of the organization. Started with a litter pick. Yeah. And then another, That's like inspiring. in a totally different realm, there's a thing that I, I believe is still live right now. Um, 
last time I checked, so a, a group of McKinsey consultants. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah, man. <laughs> See, this is the range. <laughs> From East Martians to McKinsey consultants. There we go. Yeah. Uh, a group of, I think it was 11 of them originally, wrote yeah. an open letter to the partners calling them to discuss their fossil fuel relationships. Wow. Kind of ignored to start with. Mm-hmm. Last time I heard, 1,100 McKinsey consultants had, had like signed up to this letter. Yeah. That's so, great. So to your thing, like... Those 11 might be enough. Mm-hmm. 15 might be enough. Yeah. Like, it doesn't necessarily mean, like, you have to find all of the others. Mm-hmm. Find some. some others. You're such a storyteller and a story gatherer, as you just called yourself. Are there certain phrases, certain narrative bullet points, certain language choices that you've seen people using consistently across these examples when they make that invitation, when they try to show up, when they try to establish the we, that tends to be successful more than a different set of language choices. I'm literally thinking about the sign mm. on Facebook or right. Mastodon, not Twitter, <laughs> <laughs> or on, on the posts, you know, the power line, uh, the, the power pole in my neighborhood. That's a great question and one I want to think about more. And, yeah. But my immediate reaction is that spirit of question. Right. And that language of like, of being needed. So br- briefly to kind of theory this, like there's this really powerful concept called safe uncertainty. Okay. And the idea here, so it comes from therapy originally, a guy called Barry Mace. And, and the idea essentially is that anyone who comes for therapy is in one of two places. They're either unsafe, uncertain, ah, I don't know what to do, mm-hmm. or unsafe, certain, I'm bad and I know I am. Mm. And what they think they want is safe certainty. Tell me what to do to fix it. You can see this, right? This is the subject story, the consumer story, yeah. both play in that space. Buy this or do this. Mm-hmm. And what this guy says is safe uncertainty is about holding the space, standing beside rather than in front of. Yeah. And, and saying, we don't know exactly what's going to happen and I'm not going to pretend to you that we do. Yeah. So Billy and Grimsby didn't stand up and say, if we go and pick the litter off one street, we'll have solved Grimsby. In four years' time, we'll have, we'll have bought some houses and we'll be a social landlord and we'll be, we'll be breaking it down. Yeah. He said, there are some things we can do. Oh, man. Yeah, you're blowing my mind a bit, just connecting to the consumer story's infiltration of philanthropy huh. and the need for returns and business mm. plans and projections and scale. And people with significant resources only funding things that can prove... Right. All these other downstream effects, whereas they they would have ignored the guy in Grimsby. Right. You don't have a plan. Right. What are you going to show me? You're going to show me your metrics. Show mm-hmm. me your. I need to see your deck, and and the intention of just gathering, mm. which we have Priya Parker in this season as well. And so there's a there's a beautiful overlap with some of these thoughts to kind of find their way into a person who's like, all right, I think I know how I might yeah start this. What do you think the world would look like if we made the transition to living in the citizen story? What would be practically different? What would our experience feel like? I find this question kind of hard because it's Good. like, <laughs> <Welcome to laughs> you the like table. testing me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm at a level where I'm like, some of it is that I don't think we exactly know. Are you practicing safe uncertainty with <laughs> me right now? <laughs> Working on you. But it, but it is like, I'm kind of serious, yeah. right? Like a big part of the joy of this whole thing is the act of creating it. Yeah. I, I hear you on, on truly on the safe uncertainty. Right. And you're also kind of practicing what you just described, which is you're not over promising a specific outcome right. when I ask you that question. 
I have one last question for you, and then we'll go to our live, not in studio audience. There we go. We embrace citizen as a verb here at How to Citizen. So you, Mr. Storyteller Wordsmith, uh, if you are interpreting citizen as a verb, how do you define it? What does it mean to citizen? I mean, I listened to your first episodes. Valerie Kaur, Eric Liu, yeah. When I was like writing the book, I, and honestly, I've been like fanboying you. For, <laughs> <laughs> but where I got to, the, the way I do it, is I talk about, because nouns are important to me as well, mm. because nouns become identity constructs. That's mm. why it's important to understand the consumer, not just the act of consumption. Yeah. But the way I talk about it is, is I make the distinction between citizenship as status, mm -hmm. which has become consumerized. It's become a product. It's right. become you a can, part. You can buy it. You can buy it. Man. Yeah, the golden visa. Versus citizenship as practice. Right. And that's basically you. This stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's this pod, right? Like citizenship as practice is, is citizen as verb. Yeah. Yeah. John Alexander. It's been so good to see you in person here in the same room. Um, welcome belatedly to Los Angeles. Thank you, my friend. And, and at this point, I want to turn it over to our guests to see what's on their minds. And let's see what magic we might have been missing. Janine Dinovaish. Come on down. This is Janine from Philadelphia. John, you were talking about your origin story more or less, and you said something like about 2003, and you said how much noise it, it is to have to go through, you know, 3,000 ads to get your ad out. And I was like, wow, remember when we thought 2003 was noisy? Imagine, <laughs> you know what I mean? That was really quaint. Like that was before Facebook really took over. So my question is, what do you think as a storyteller, like a professional storyteller, what do you see as the impact social media has had on the relationship between all of us civilians, like public and storytelling, meaning making, and I guess story choosing, right? Because you're talking about our ability to choose our stories and make stories and opt in and out. And I just want you to reflect on what these technologies are doing to that. Thank you, Janine. Uh, the first thing I would say is, um, to your kind of charting back through time, I think we also need to remember 2011 and what we thought the promise of these things were. So a good friend of mine is a woman called Omazine Khalifa, who you, again, should have on here. Yeah. Uh, and she was one of the organizers of the Tunisian revolution mm. and using social media in beautiful ways. Yeah. When we all thought Facebook was the answer, right? And I think I do believe that social media have that potential. And uh, like, I do see everything through the lens of these stories. Like, and I, I, the way I would frame it is that we build our technologies from within stories. Mm. So when we build them from within a consumer story, they then speak back to us as consumers. Yeah. Facebook and Twitter and so on, like they're designed for us as consumers. I think the most powerful analogy really is actually more like what was originally called the sharing economy, right? Like the Airbnbs and Ubers of this world where we were like, uh, I mean, these were, these were out, out just forming when I was starting to really develop this language. And I was like, maybe I don't need to do this because like we're just going to share everything. And like the whole dream was that every transaction would become a relationship. Yeah. But because they were built from within the consumer story, what's actually happened is that every relationship becomes a transaction. We just become consumers of each other. Mm -hmm. It's the story that I would look to. And maybe to this thing about critical intervention points, like Twitter right now is super fascinating, right? Like what, what might happen 
in that space or what what might mastodon become or yeah. like if in this moment we can seize on the collapse in that space and build something from within the citizen story maybe we could have genuinely social media absolutely i love that i have too many thoughts on that myself janine as well they they align uh, largely with what you shared john what social media has done to us is turn the consumer story up to 11,000 uh-huh. right and atomize us and chop us up and sell us off for parts and so it's much much more violent than what we've experienced with traditional media and advertising, et cetera. So let's go to the next question. We've got Ray. I'm Ray Kennedy. I'm uh, here in the Coachella Valley in Southern California. I had the pleasure of driving into LA last night to see John at the uh, book tour event. And just wanted to ask, one of the things that uh, that I remember reading years ago, I think 2005 it was, is the book, um, The Wisdom of Crowds. And I was wondering if that was something that had, uh, you know, played a role in your thinking as it evolved. Thank you, Ray. I'm trying to think of a way to make a longer answer than yes. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to. It gives us time for more questions. Well, yeah, maybe yeah. I'll just say that. I mean, it was off the back of the wisdom of crowds, actually, that the original concept of my farm developed. Because yeah. we were like, actually, we might get different intelligences into the space. Maybe one thing I will say on this, actually, I think this is where the corruption of voting uh, is a really good way to understand the corruption of voting. So voting, if it's an act of collective intelligence, can be a decent methodology, right? Mm -hmm. But to do that, we all have to be asking the same collective question. This is one of the points that Suryaki makes in Wisdom of Crowds. Everyone has to be asking, what's the option here that's in the best interest, in the best collective interest? But one of the things that's happened through the consumerization of our politics is that we're no longer all asking what's in our collective interest. Instead, we're individually asking what's in my interest. Yeah. Yeah. The way we ask the question. Um, and what question we ask. And, and also, are, are bots answering the questions or are they real humans? <laughs> you know, there, was, there was a simplicity to, like, just put it up for a crowd vote and that'll solve it. And there was the process design was weak when it came to defending against actors, information warfare artists, and, yeah. and all of this that could corrupt such a such a process. Thank you so much, Ray, for that question. Let's see. I'm going to ask this on behalf. A uh, listener-submitted question from Jonathan asks, what do you think about using behavioral economic insights to encourage citizen-like behavior over consumer-like behavior? Basically, can you use the master's tools to free the enslaved? Can you use the tools of the consumer story in service of a citizen story? Look, I think using good design, using creativity, yeah. framing things carefully, like, is all part of this. I do worry about the phenomenon of nudge. Mm. Because I think the the underlying premise of that so often is... Can you define that briefly? Nudging is this idea that you sort of unconsciously uh, prompt someone to behave in a certain way. So you, like, you get people to keep their towels in a hotel room because you say most people do that. Okay, um, got it rather than appealing to the kind of the moral argument which motivates fewer people. So you're like, and like, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. My worry, though, is there's two things. The first is that we underappreciate what's actually kind of the biggest nudge in history, which is the fact that we've got this story 3,000 times a day plus. I mean, Mm. to Janine's question, the latest estimates are anything up to 10,000 times a day for certain cohorts. Yeah. 
And so that's behavioral economics right there, yeah. right? Yeah. The other thing is that I think what results from that, and so often these approaches come from here, is you're actually, um, some people call it sustainability by stealth, <laughs> right? Okay. And it's like tricking people into doing the greener thing, essentially, yeah. because that's the only way we can possibly imagine them doing it. we can't trust them right. to just do the better thing for our collective self. Right. And in a way, it's like, because it, I think the towels thing is kind of interesting, right? Because when you see that as a kind of grand victory, you're starting so far down the down the food chain because you're not sharing the big question that yeah. goes, how might we like, how might we make our society sustainable? How might we make this city regenerative? Yeah. Like if you hold that question, this was the question we were talking, I was talking about with Wellington City Council in New Zealand, how might Wellington become the first regenerative city in the world? Mm. Oh, that's a great question. Requires a lot of people. Right. Yeah. Rather than like, okay, we need to decrease the uh, water footprint of Wellington's hotels. Like let's... By this percentage point with this little nudge. Yeah. So I don't want to be too like black and white about it. Yeah. Like I, but... There's, there's nuance to it. And I, I think it is, there's, I have a temptation often of, you know, we're at war and the other side is deploying all of these advanced weapons Right. And are we going to unilaterally disarm? Right. So I'm already choosing the language of combat and war, but it sometimes feels like that truly. Mm -hmm. And so are we being naive in saying, well, no, we'll just, we'll just tell people the truth and they'll figure it out right. when they're being lied to 10,000 times a day. Right. Is that a fair way to show up to a battle for a home planet that we could all live on or justice and access to resources for many people who've never had it before? I don't think there's a simple answer to it. I'm pretty sure a war metaphor isn't going to get us to peace sustainably, but there's also a reality check on what tools, what time, right. you know, for what duration, and being cleared with... Here's a, I'm spending more time on this than I intended, but I think it's just so fascinating. What rubs me mostly the wrong way is the lack of transparency when these techniques are used on us. Right. And then I find out later, and that weakens trust even more. Right. I'm like, oh, so I'm a subject to your experiment. Yeah. And you couldn't just tell me why and how and still give me incentives. Incentives are fine. But the manipulation without consent or transparency, that feels like a real problem. That's really interesting. And it's like, and then what are we validating? Right. And if we're becoming the, the thing, tools, the others. Exactly. if we're becoming the thing, then we're just... Now we're citizen washing. Right. <laughs> right. All right. We have uh, Martha Touré with our last question. And if we have time left, some closing remarks. Hello, Martha. Thank you very kindly, John Alexander. This has been most thought provoking. I think we're in a situation which is comparable to the end of the Bronze Age. We are in many ways really at mercy of individuals, authorities, and et cetera, over which we have no power, and with whom we have no community. And it strikes me as crucial that we develop community with the people on whom we depend. Thoughts? Thank you so much, Martha. John? I think, like I hear a lot of what you're bringing to this in the sense that we're in it now, right? Like these challenges are not things it's that are It's not scenario planning exercise right. for a distant, possibly dystopic future. There's it's 33 million people displaced in Pakistan. Yeah. There's bushfires and wildfires and like it's, we're in it. Mm -hmm. And the likelihood is that there are some collapses. Yeah. That said, 
I am also like, there's a lovely um, Bio Komalafe, amazing Nigerian philosopher, um, says a couple of remarkable things, well, many remarkable things, but one of them is times are urgent, we must slow down. <laughs> Some of this work is like, let us take the opportunity to come together because if we rush, that is precisely what will force us into the, into the arms of the subject story again. Mm. And maybe in that light, I'll put forward my, my preferred historical analogy, which is the aftermath of World War II, which was a moment of incredible institutional innovation. Like you think what was created in those years, right? The UN and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the European Coal and Steel Community that became the EU, the IMF and the World Bank, the, in the UK, the National Health Service, like, and all of it really from within the consumer story, all with the best intentions, but all with this frame of service and with the idea that, that trade brings peace. And, and that's because we are consumers. And so if we fulfill our kind of material needs, then we won't fight. In this moment in time that we need an institutional innovation on the same scale, but what we need is it to be the ideas and energy and resources of everyone, right? Like we, we need to run those processes in a way that genuinely taps into all the wisdoms. Um, and probably, frankly, the people who look and sound like me getting quite seriously out of the way of that. And if anything, helping hold the space rather than dominating that space. And that I think is totally possible. And I think it can still be in time that we need a new universal declaration. We need new institutions at that scale, but we need to do it really differently. The good news, I think, is that we can only do it really differently now. <laughs> there, there's no going back. John, thank you for doing this podcast with me live, in person, with our virtual audience. I so appreciate everything you're up to. Thank you, my friend. It's been great to be here. There's so much that we've built in our society that is about empowering the individual to essentially live alone. We've got automated voice assistance across every device, enough delivery and service apps to never leave our homes, and so many TV shows and podcasts that we can just observe conversations instead of having them. Now, for the record, this podcast is obviously part of the solution, not the problem, but you get my drift. We're supposed to be these rugged, individualistic armies of one. And for what? Who benefits from that? Who benefits from us feeling alone and trying to satisfy that loneliness with purchases? It's those who profit from the consumer story. And listen, I don't see all advertising as evil. Some of my best friends work in advertising. I'm just saying, like, I think if we were hit with thousands of messages a day telling us we are citizens, agents of our own future, members of a collective who have the power to shape our communities through collaboration, instead of messages telling us to buy shit all the time, I just think we'd live in a better world. And now it's time for some actions. We've grouped these into three categories. First, try this as an internal reflection. You can do this all by yourself. Think about the three stories, subject, consumer, and citizen. Where do those stories show up in your life? Maybe you're a subject with your parents or a consumer in your neighborhood. In what spaces, communities, or realms, oh, I love the word realms, 
In what spaces are you already living the citizen story? Where else could you show up that way? Second, become more informed by reading about John's citizen work. Yes, you should read his book, but a shorter way in is the BBC Future article, Citizen Future, Why We Need a New Story of Self and Society. Also, just visit the new Citizenship Project online. They've got a number of resources to help you or your organization shift into that citizen story. We've linked to both in the show notes. Finally, here's something you can do to publicly participate. I keep thinking about John's question. What are you trying to do in the world that's so big you actually need other people to do it with you? So I want you to think of something like that. It can actually be small. It just has to be too big for you to do alone because we're done doing things alone. Maybe it's fixing the fence around your yard, organizing a fundraiser at your school, or envisioning a future for your company. Ask someone to help you do it. Now, I know some of us have a harder time asking for help than others. So I also want you to offer help to someone you're connected to. Just ask them, is there something you're trying to do that I can help you with? I promise you'll feel better and you'll make your community better. If you take any of these actions, please brag about it online and use the hashtag HowToCitizen. Also, tag our Instagram, HowToCitizen. I am always online and I really do see your messages, so send them. You can also visit our website, HowToCitizen.com, which has all of our shows, full transcripts, actions, and more. Finally, see this episode's show notes for resources, actions, and more ways to connect. How to Citizen with Baratunde Day is a production of iHeartRadio Podcasts and Row Home Productions. Our executive producers are me, Baratunde Thurston, and Elizabeth Stewart. Our lead producer is Ali Graham. Our associate producer is Danya Abdel-Hamid. Alex Lewis is our managing producer. And John Myers is our executive editor. Our mix engineer is Justin Berger. Our audience engagement fellow is Jasmine Lewis. Special thanks to Joelle Smith from iHeartRadio and Layla Bina. John is pushing the bounds of how we can practice democracy if we live in the citizen story. But even within the existing boundaries and models, we can do more. So we're going to talk about voting. Yeah, voting. How do we take this often uninspired, tedious practice and infuse it with a sense of community and culture? Fear is a powerful motivator. Anger is a powerful motivator. The problem is that it's not sustainable, that people burn out and tune out. And what I'm proposing is much more sustainable. I say that joy is a renewable resource that we can continue to tap back into, that people want to come and hang out with us. They want to come and volunteer with us. They want to come and donate to our efforts because there's a, a nine-foot person walking around and like singing show tunes, keeping voters entertained um, and keeping people's spirits high. Next episode, we do just that with Inse Ufa. Row Home Productions.
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.